We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When Clive tells you he respects someone, the only appropriate thing to do is have them on the podcast. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, the Blackman Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Bonus pod for you here. Um, this was recorded not quite a week ago, and I wanted to have it out sooner, but I kept thinking, well, the Gabriel Jesus news is going to break. He's going to be announced. We'll release the Gabriel Jesus content, and then uh, we'll have this interview as just sort of a nice bonus or vice versa. Everything got thrown up in the air this week because there's some Rafinha news that people are pretty upset about. There's Gabriel Jesus arrival stuff. Um, so this this lands in a weird spot, but it's a great conversation. So Daniel Friba is a cycling journalist, a celebrated author, and someone who Clive respects immensely, and therefore I think we should all respect immensely, um, a titan in sports journalism and someone who I think has a lot of really interesting insight to lend to the conversation around the game. So this is a more far-reaching conversation covering doping, covering transfer journalism and how that has evolved and and how he looks at that from his perspective, access journalism and so on and so forth. Uh, it will touch on fun Arsenal topics too, though, like Bukayo Saka's contract. We had a really long conversation about that as well. So that's what's ahead. I hope you enjoy it. And now it is my great pleasure to be joined by Daniel Friba, who is someone you probably don't need an introduction to, but if you're not clued in on the cycling world, you may not have come in contact with his great work. He's a celebrated cycling journalist and celebrated author, many great books in the field of cycling, uh, one of which has just now come out, and it's Jan Ulrich, The Best That Ever, Best That Never Was, um, and we can certainly discuss that title a bit. You can also find him on Twitter at Freeboss, and that is spelled just because... Uh, Pronunciation and spelling is not my thing. F-R-I-E-B-O-S. And with all of that preamble out of the way, it is a great pleasure to introduce cycling journalist and Arsenal fan, uh, Daniel Freeba. Nice to meet you, Daniel. Lovely to meet you, Elliot. And a very, you said a celebrated cycling author or expert and very uncelebrated Arsenal fan because every time I mention the fact that I'm an Arsenal fan on my podcast, the cycling podcast, I well, I lose Twitter followers, we lose <laughs> listeners, and I, yeah, I get pelters for that. <laughs> I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I would suggest you need a better class of listener to your cycling podcast. But you are in a safe space here, so you can get all the <laughs> Arsenal feelings out, whether those positive feelings, negative feelings. It's funny, I say it's a safe space. Sometimes talking about Arsenal on an Arsenal podcast is the least safe space for expressing I know. Opinions. I mean, you guys are my... You guys are very much my my guilty pleasure. Um, I am a, a faithful, long-term listener to the podcast. And yeah, it's quite strange being on the other end of the microphone. Especially, you know, people often talk to us on the Cycling Podcast about the strange relationship you develop with podcast hosts. And I certainly have that with you guys. I feel like I know I know all of you and your um, your distinct and very individual views on, on Arsenal um, very, very well. Yeah, it's sort of a parasocial relationship, but it's it's a good one. And the, the nice thing is, like, I, I, as you know, I was in London last month, had a chance to meet a lot of people, and it, it is meaningful when you can make that relationship more two-way uh, in a real way. Obviously, social media gives us some chance to do that. Um, so here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll lob some softball sort of cycling journalist <laughs> questions your way before as an introduction into the hot Arsenal topics that I'm sure you're, you're excited to have a, a free space to talk about. Let's just start with the book. 
uh, Jan Ulrich, the best that never was. Maybe you can just tell people quickly the the elevator pitch for it and where to get it because because it looks like a great read. Yeah, well, Jan Ulrich is a name that maybe lay cycling fans or people who have tuned into cycling sort of once a year for the last 10 years only or 15 years might not be too familiar with. But he was really the, the bridesmaid to um, Lance Armstrong sort of bridezilla I suppose in the Tour de France Lance Armstrong of course won the Tour de France seven times was subsequently stripped because of doping and Jan Ulrich was the guy who really he should have been the dominant figure in professional cycling in 1997 he won at a very young age Um, he won incredibly emphatically and everyone said he was going to dominate the Tour de France and for 10 years or more then Armstrong came along and sort of trampled all over his dreams and um, um, Ulrich's career um, sort of Heated out um, amid allegations that he wasn't really very professional and that, you know, he put on a lot of weight in winter and he was a, a real sort of nearly man and fall guy to to Armstrong's, I suppose, alpha male at the time. Hmm. And then he got very much embroiled in the doping well, the, the pandemic um, doping plague, really, that engulfed professional cycling in that era. So in 2006, Ulrich himself was disgraced. And thereafter, his life has unfortunately, very sadly, at various points, kind of unraveled um, into um, issues with alcohol and personal problems. And it's been quite a sad story, to be honest. It was a very, oh. what, it was a, uh, a, a very, substantial undertaking i mean the book took me seven years to to write and lots of different threads to it the east german sports system doping those personal issues that i discussed and the relationship with armstrong i mean i spent some time with lance armstrong um who has has now become sort of yannel guardian angel or one of them um so that's another interesting interesting thread yeah oh yeah that that definitely didn't see that coming that's a twist (laughs) that i'll be looking forward to reading about I, i think one of the interesting parallels in these sports, in any sport really right now, is the issue of doping. And it, it's kind of neat to be able to ask you about this, Daniel, because you can't cover your primary sport without discussing doping. It is an issue that I would say it manages to escape the orbit of just cycling fans. I, I have to confess to not being a cycling fan myself, but I'm very familiar with the doping scandals of the sport. And yet somehow we find ourselves not inquiring about that in football. We, I think, know that it goes on, right? We're not, um, you you know, we're not so naive as to think it doesn't go on, but we find ourselves much less animated about it, much less interested in inquiring about it. And I'm curious, really two things. One, why you think it is that it is such an important topic in sports like athletics and cycling and animates so much outrage and debate an action, but does not in a sport like football. And secondly, just the extent to which you think it might be rampant in that sport without really being discussed. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, there is a a perception and there is some truth in this that um, athletic performance is the only really determinant of results in, in athletics and cycling so physiological ability and 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 doping is obviously that that's what it's designed to do to improve someone's physiological capacities whereas the in football for example tennis um motor skills um what we sort of nebulously refer to as kind of talent um and something more something with a bit more mystique i suppose and that plays a bigger role i mean i think it's a it is a fallacy and i think if we're all honest we realize that's a fallacy i mean you guys on the on your podcast, you talk a lot talk a lot these days about analytics, and we've all become sort of familiar of the the kind of vernacular of, of football analytics, and you know the the kind of benchmark of ten kilometers a a, a match for a, pl- a player to run, or eleven kilometers that's seen as good the number of sprints in a match. So I think more and more people are familiar with the role that um, players' physical capacity and, and the influence that has on their ultimate performance. And it would be, I think, naive in that light to think that doping substances would not improve someone's output and improve yeah. um, and, and enhance someone's effectiveness. The other issue with football is that the testing has been very, very lax over the years. I mean, I haven't dug into this recently. At various points in my sort of 20 years of covering cycling, I have looked at other sports and exactly what's been going on with testing at particular times. Um, 
certainly a lot less testing is done in football and um, there has been a lot less scrutiny. I mean, a lot of what kind of good has happened in professional cycling in the last 10 or 15 years has come from the scrutiny of journalists and also, to be honest, the judiciary, there there are laws in various countries anti-doping laws now in spain and italy and they have created or they've led to a lot of scrutiny which football has been spared really i mean it varies from country to country there's a there's more appetite to look into this in for example germany i mean germany you know going back to januari there was this there was this incredible sort of well it was kind of hard line very rigorous and process of moral interrogation that took place when he was exposed and and it was quite brutal for him but that's very much part of the german culture and they've they have looked into football a lot more forensically than other countries have i mean there have been investigations into the use of painkillers the rampant use of painkillers in german football but in most countries there has been no obvious or discernible appetite to look into those issues yeah and i think uh you know tim was invited to the arsenal high performance center and and allowed to interview and participate in some interactive um activities and one of them was sort of comparing your your output and your performance to the metrics being set by the current players and what he said is that sort of sprint repeatability was the one no one could get close to and i feel like performance enhancing drugs their biggest impact for these high-end athletes is sprint recovery, sprint repeatability, right? Shortening the time between sprints or even performances in terms of recovery, and then the ability to reproduce maximum output. And so for people who say, well, doping doesn't matter in football because it can't you know, give you the wand of a left foot. It can't give you the touch of a Messi, the, the shot of a Ronaldo. That's true. But the game has become so much about athleticism and power, and that sprint recovery is so important. It's funny though, you know, I grew up in America in the era of steroid baseball. I think at that time, it was very easy to understand. You take steroids, they make you stronger, you perform better. It was very linear one-to-one connection. To some extent, do you think that the technology has outpaced the regulations? And what's happened is it's become so unclear both to the regulators and to the fans what represents doping because you'll see players suspended who say like, oh, I took my wife's allergy medicine or I was just taking a vitamin supplement. I guess there's something in there that triggered the suspension. I mean, obviously, in most cases, we think that's an excuse, but whether it's testosterone or HGH, you know, the anabolic steroids of the bygone era are not what we're talking about anymore. And I think it's gotten harder to even identify what substances qualify and need to be regulated. And do you think that that, the degree of that confusion and technology advancement has sort of befuddled regulators and confused fans to the extent that people have just stopped being able to care about? Do you think there's some of that, just a confusion because of technological advancement? I mean, I think so. In cycling, definitely what we've seen, and we've seen a, a very sort of salutary, healthy culture change in the last 10 years. But the suspicion mm. is that we've moved into gray areas and we've moved into the mm. world of what we call therapeutic use exemptions where you know you purport to have an ailment and you treat an ailment with a substance which also enhances your performance and also you know we we hear this phrase a lot which was coined really in cycling by um, a guy who set up team sky the british team dave brailsford the um the aggregation of marginal gains we talk about marginal gains now in football yeah. and the, the belief is that the it's quite hard to cheat on the industrial scale in cycling in the way that riders could in the 90s and, and 2000s and the noughties. But there are definitely, you can get 1%, 2%, 3%. The question there that the, the, the riders have to ask themselves is, is it worth it, you know, compared to or set against the jeopardy of getting caught? Is it worth taking the risk of doping to just gain 1% when you can also gain 1% mm. by with better clothing, going to the wind tunnel, better equipment. And our sort of belief, our feeling is that most of the time they decide that that, the risk is not worth the the reward as far as doping is concerned. But in football, I I don't believe that the testing is anywhere near as rigorous. And I still think there are substances and there are doping methods which could procure huge, huge advantages. However, I would say there has never been, and you know, I have some contacts in the football world, and they who who work across cycling and football, and it's quite interesting to get their point of view. And they always say to me that the culture of cycling had a very, very deeply rooted doping culture going back a hundred years. 
And football has never really had that. And that's been the biggest bulwark. That has been the biggest in- insurance against rampant doping in football. Although, you know, there have been some, there's been some good journalism done in Italy, for example, in it, certainly in the 1990s, the, the, the substance that dominated the conversation in cycling and doping was EPO. And there have been some very well founded allegations about the Juventus team in the 90s and even the French national team that won the World Cup in 1998 or various players that were a part hmm. of that. We all, we all know the allegations against certain clubs, and I, I don't mean formal allegations, I mean sort of the rumored allegations, whether it's Pep City, Klopp's Liverpool, Real Madrid, whatever it is. There, there's always rumors going around, and obviously I can't speak to whether there's any validity to them. What I would say is really two things. One, if I'm a midfielder playing in the championship and I want to get to the Premier League, that jump is worth potentially tens of millions of dollars to me. And the risk of being caught is worth the gain in that respect, right? And so I I think it's an easy choice to make. But I think on the other side, I just don't believe there's any appetite, Daniel, on the part of the people running these leagues in charge of the game to say, hey, we're willing to throw Cristiano Ronaldo out for a season. We're willing to have Kylian Mbappe miss a whole season because he got caught doping. I don't think there's any appetite. The fans don't want to miss out on watching no. those players, and the regulators, you know, who run the, the sport, don't want to miss out on the revenue and the you know the ratings and the the immense amount of money dependent upon these players being on the pitch for what doesn't appear to be an issue that's front and center. So, as a final point on this, because I know this is not the the bulk of what we want to talk about, but um, we think it's happening. Probably never going to be addressed in any serious way. Is that fair to say? I don't think so. I think a tipping point could come at if a, a large number of people or um, commentators believe that the sport is somehow being completely transfigured. And, and that was really what, what brought everything to a head in cycling was the emergence of this substance EPO, which people thought was distorting the, the natural order. Prior to that, there had always been substances and there, all, there had always been doping methods. But the belief was that everyone was taking them and they procured the same advantages for pretty much everyone. With EPO, what changed was that they felt that you could turn a donkey into a racehorse. And people could see mm. this. They could they saw guys who had been journeymen throughout their career and they, you know, they did the equivalent of what you've just described with a, a championship player. It would be like a championship player, you know, all of a sudden becoming the the top scorer three years in a row in the Premier League. And that's what happened. Mm. And 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 at that point, uh, a sort of belief initially in the media and eventually very slowly, a lot later, uh, a, a conviction started to take, to take hold that this could not go on. And, you know, I covered three tours to France where it was more like covering, it was it was like being on the wire. I mean, it was sirens wailing. It was riders being, it was riders being arrested at the finish line. It was thrilling to cover <laughs> as a journalist, but that's how bad things got. And it was... There were wow. literally ser- serious conversations about stopping the sport, stopping the Tour de France. This can't go on. And that's what it took for things to change. Um, I don't think we're anywhere near, and I don't think we'll ever get to that point in football. Yeah, it's fair. And I do I do agree at least with the, the basic assertion that you're not going to turn a donkey into a racehorse in football in the sense that if the basic technique isn't there, I don't think you will become the, the leading scorer in the Premier League. But... If you're a fullback with decent technique, but you just can't get up and down the flanks enough, you know, you don't have that engine and it gives you that engine. I mean, it can be career changing. So it'd be interesting to see if that ever changes. Yeah, please. I mean, mean, also, Elliot, you, you know, we talked earlier about, well, stamina, endurance and the thing that's often overlooked and and the kind of motor skills and the, um, you know, the skill factor, the things often overlooked is that skill level and technique really decreases as you go through a football match you know when we you know you guys talk about this in the podcast pundits talk about it all the time you get beyond sort of 70 minutes people are miscontrolling passes that they wouldn't in the first 10 minutes because they're tired so it it has an effect on on lots of different levels not just the ability to run up and down a field yeah that that's well said so look we should pivot because hashtag clicks and the best way to do that is (laughs) transfer stuff so we'll yeah. talk about that just in a fun way, but let's talk about it from a journalistic perspective because I think this is interesting. This time of year, we are all on 
Twitter or News Now or in our Discord transfer, dubious transfer rumors channel, wherever you find yourself, um, trying to absorb as many rumors as possible because they're fun. But what's interesting to me is the extent to which sourcing or credibility or even at a more basic level, truth, fundamentally even a shred of truth, sometimes seems to be totally absent from this little corner of journalism. Now, there are obviously very good journalists doing very good work with excellent sources, but there are some being manipulated by agents and some being manipulated by clubs and some just taking an unsourced transfer tweet and <laughs> making it the basis of an article. Obviously, as, as a credible journalist who you know, has built a reputation on the work you've done and the writing that you've done, I'm curious how you view this culture of transfer reporting and the extent to which it doesn't seem to have any internal controls in terms of what is or isn't credible enough or properly sourced enough to be published, and really the access journalism more than anything that I think takes place during this time to curry favor with a club or an agent. Because you know, there are people, and I won't name them, who have built massive followings and reputations in just this little tiny segment of football journalism. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's been really interesting over the years to just, just observe how that's evolved and how much better, whether it's podcasts or just people who are very active on Twitter, have, have got at sorting the, the fact from the fiction. Um, mm. you, you know, you see these lists produced now, tier one, tier two, tier three sources. And, and just also how all-consuming it, it is. I mean, I'm quite fortunate in that just as the football season, which is, um, you know, cycling is a job and it's a, it's a passion for me, but my weeks are really structured around Saturday or Wednesday when Arsenal are playing. Um, but just right. as, just yeah. as, just as, just as the football is, <laughs> yeah, just as the football is finishing, then I get to, it's the meat of the cycling season. So I get to sort of focus on that, but I'm just, it's just withering to watch, to sort of sit back and watch people whip themselves into a frenzy in May or in late May or early June about lack of activity in the transfer market mm -hmm. by Arsenal or whoever it is. But yeah, it's been, it, it, I mean, I, I'm intrigued by it as well because I know how it works in cycling. You know, I know how contacts work with agents, with teams. Our access has always been great in professional cycling. You know, we've, we've always had the phone numbers of the top riders or, uh, you know, we have the phone numbers of a lot of top riders. We can contact them and we speak with them on a regular basis. My impression, and I do know people who work in football journalism and I've spoken to them about this, but my impression is that doesn't often happen in football or certainly not to the same extent. Um, but I think usually most sensible people, and and you, I certainly class you guys on the podcast as sensible people. Why? Thank you. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a sheer it's a sheer sort of Occam's razor. It's a kind of it's an exercise in logic. Um, you see a lot of rumors that just cannot possibly make sense um, yeah. because you know the, the Arsenal take Arsenal as an example they've already got a player in that position or they um, you know you look at the transfer fee being quoted and it just does not make sense I mean I, I listened to your, um, your podcast the other day after the Fabio Vieira um, signing and I, I agreed with you on that that it's, it's really refreshing when something comes completely out of nowhere and confounds everyone um, yeah. it's kind of a, a, miggle, a middle finger to, to all of the nonsensical speculation that goes on that's protracted over the whole summer on um, on Twitter. But then on the other hand, at the moment with Arsenal, we've got a lot of, well, we've got these deals that are supposedly in the works that have been rumoured for a long time and have been speculated for a long time um, about on Twitter. So it's not all, it, it, it's not all um, complete nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> not entirely completely nonsense. No, no, I agree with that. And I mean, Look, I don't want to suggest that there's nobody doing any good work when it comes to transfer journalism. It's just that, you know, and, and maybe, you know, being American too, and, and it's starting to bleed into how it's done in America. I don't want to suggest that there's some sort, sort of integrity here that doesn't exist in transfer journalism and football. But like, how different you know, is I think it? there are, mm. it, it is a little different. It is, and I, I think maybe it's because there are, maybe fewer people who are trusted to report on this. They have genuine access and genuine information and they tend to only come out with it when they're right. And you don't have the wide range of sources 
from all over the mm-hmm. place reporting on these players and mm-hmm. maybe because it's less multinational, you know, it, so mm-hmm. you don't have, uh, you know, an, an Italian outlet reporting on an Italian player or a radio station in Brazil reporting on a Brazilian player, things like that. So, so it was a little unique to me. And look, it is fun. It is okay mm-hmm. to have fun with it. The, the problem is when you take it as gospel and then start to draw conclusions about the club, about the operators behind the scenes. And we're all mm-hmm. guilty of doing that from time to time. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of curious. You mentioned the Fabio Vieira signing. You, you said the name so well. Tim is going to be so so happy. <laughs> but I, I, I think the one that obviously is on everyone's lips right now is the Gabriel Jesus signing. And it looks finally imminent after this one being reported for a long time and seeming to be Arsenal's top target. And... I'm curious, just as a fan, how you feel about this one. Because, I mean, at a minimum, I think it is a great sign that Arsenal can have a top target from a big club that other clubs would be interested in, entering his prime, clearly very talented, and we can go about our business, get it done, and get that player. I think that the fact that the recruitment process works at that level, you know, because you can always find the the diamond in the rough, hopefully. But when it comes to a player everybody knows, and you're not the only one in for them, and they're your top target that you can still go out and make it happen. I think we did that with Odegaard last summer, among others. And I think it looks like we're doing it with Jesus again this summer. So do you? what's your reaction to, to our ability seemingly to get the Gabriel Jesus deal done? It's interesting. I mean, talking about sort of frustrations with the media, one of my perennial frustrations, and I suppose your guys as well, uh, yours is as well, um, is when you watch whether it's Sky or football on another channel, and it's very, very obvious that the pundits don't watch every Arsenal game, for example. And because it's, and I know myself, even when you know Arsenal play other teams, I really don't pay that much attention to what individual players on the other team are doing, unless they're a real thorn in our side that particular day. And I must say, with Gabriel mm-hmm. um, Jesus. Um, Part of it is the nature of Man City in my eyes. In my when I think of Man City in sort of my mind's eye, it's a it's a team of sort of of almost interchangeable parts, particularly in the in the forward um, third in the last third. And Gabriel Jesus doesn't really stand out. He doesn't really stand out for his position on the pitch. He's, I don't necessarily picture him always at the kind of apex of the of their pyramid as a, a forward player he's someone who does something similar to what Mares does or Sterling does um but I don't really know his game that well he's I mean we all have these pet peeves about different types of players and you know one pet peeve of mine is when strikers can't really they can't strike the ball very well. They scuff it a lot. And we've, we've had that for a few years at Arsenal. And, yes. you know, it's been a bit of a pet peeve of mine with Enketia at times in the last, um, you know, that we haven't seen him that much, but it's been one of my reservations about him. And, I, you know, I've seen Gabriel Jesus. He strikes the ball well with his right foot, his left foot. He seems to move around well. He's mobile. And, um, but then I can also see him in the worst possible case scenario. I can see him possibly being a slightly superior Lacazette with sort of similar attributes um, in the in the very worst case scenario. I would say that like what's hard with Gabriel Jesus is he has a couple of seasons under his belt of mm. having underlying metrics that are elite, like elite elite. And we're talking like 0.9 Which, XG which per metrics? About, okay. Uh, XG per 90, expected assist per 90, total XG plus XA, non-penalty XA, uh, non-penalty XG plus XA per 90, as these things just roll off my tongue here, um, over over one. And and we see some genuinely elite output from him at How much? times. Um, yep. How much do you discount those? How much... To- how much should you attribute to the fact that he's in an elite team in those metrics? So it's funny. I, I think people overstate that. I really mm. do think that. I think the idea that you can put anybody into a good team and they will produce at a high level is not borne out um, by by data or by experience. And that mediocre players who step into good teams tend to still perform at a mediocre level. Um, you know, we've we've seen players go to these teams, whether it's Liverpool or City, and and not work out. You know, Chelsea have made a lot of mistakes with players coming into a team that was very good and then they didn't perform um, for one reason or another. So I, I, I know there are some people that would say that that's a factor. I would say not so much. I mean, I'll put it this way. The other thing, you know, you reference Lacazette. Alexander Lacazette is at the tail end of his prime, but has basically been at Arsenal for his prime. 
and never really produced elite-level output, either goals, assists, or even underlying metrics. Gabriel Jesus has just hit his prime, right? So we we would expect to see, I think, a step up in, in what he provides now. And, you know, when you see a guy who at times, at 22, at 23, in the Premier League, in a team that probably plays how we want to play, producing over one expected goal and assist per 90, that tells me that there's something there. And by the way, you know, Alexander Lacazette, granted there was a lot of competition, never really a factor for the French national team. Gabriel Jesus has been the number nine for Brazil. I've seen him drag Brazil, more or less, through a qualifying campaign in Conmebol, which is not an easy thing to do, scoring lots of important goals and getting them to a World Cup. So there's pedigree there. You know, if you can start for Brazil at, at number nine, and if you can score goals at the Premier League level, and, and Pep Guardiola at the tail end of a season where you're chasing a title is relying on you to start and score important goals, and you played for our manager, oh, by the way, I think there's a lot of signal there that cuts through what is often noise. And I, I would just say this is a final point. I'll get your thoughts on this too. You look at like how Liverpool have built their team. I'll use Diogo Jota as an example, but it could be... Diaz, Ormane, or Salah. They weren't the superstar tier buys. They were guys that had metrics that look really interesting. You know, you look at Diogo Jota at Wolves, 0.38 expected goals per 90, 0.53 XG plus XA per 90. And they saw something there in those underlying metrics, not just those, obviously. They're using a lot more advanced stuff than glancing at FB ref. And they saw him at that age, you know, 23 right where you'd expect to start to see a player really come into their own, and they went for him. And they did that with Mane and with Salah and Diaz and, and Jota, and they've really built an impressive team doing that. Um, I think there's a lot of similarities in Gabriel Jesus. There's a lot of elite underlying metrics, whether it's shots, he's you know he's a three-shot-per-game kind of guy, whether it's ball progression or dribbling or X to your XA, and he's coming into his prime. So it's a long, rambling way of me saying there's enough here for me to think this is a savvy move. And what I like about it, Daniel, and I want to get your thoughts on this, I don't know that you want the single point of failure of we're going to spend $80 million on a center forward, and that's what he does, and he can't do anything else. You know, we did that. We had Aubameyang and Lacazette, and we wasted a lot of time trying to put both of them on the pitch together and noticing that you couldn't get the best out of both at the same time. With Gabriel Jesus, whether he's on the left and Saka's on the right or Saka's on the right and he's on the left and Ketty is through the middle or he's through the middle and Martinelli's on the left. You know, we have the ability to deploy our attacking resources now in the way that works best. And so do, do you tend to think that we should have more specialization up front or are you okay with this idea of flexibility? There was a question I guess at the I, end of that eventually. <laughs> <Amazing>. <laughs> um, I guess I have I have faith. I mean, oh, that microphone connection just let sorry. you down at the critical moment. Sorry. There you go. Yeah, you're good. I, I, I guess I do. I have faith in Arteta's judgment. I mean, over the course of the last couple of years, uh, in my mind, um, the, the, the my, my faith in him as a man of sort of substance and a man of decent judgment has has increased. But I suppose another slight concern with the Gabriel Jesus signing, but this is. You know, this is typical of the kind of postulations that we indulge in as fans based on no information and no real idea of how in the particular individuals work. But um, Edu and this kind of Brazilian clique, I mean, it, it's premature to call it a clique, but this Brazilian group of players that is being created. Um, and this is one of the, you know, you talked the other day about the Fabio Vieira signing. Um one of the things that's comforting about signing like that is it reassures you that they're not just doing the sort of facile thing and it's come out of left field. Whereas what would be the most facile thing, the, the easiest thing for someone like Edu to do, pick guys who speak his language, who he knows from the Brazilian national team setup. And I suppose you could say the same about Arteta and Gabriel Jesus. Um, that said... I do, you know, I would I would like to see Arsenal, particularly going forward over the last couple of years, to play more of a kind of liquid brand of football with players changing positions, pay, players starting games in different positions. Um, I think that's one of that's been one of our consistent gripes over the last couple of years. That at its worst, this 
football that, that Arsenal have been playing under Mikel Arteta has looked a little bit mechanical and a little bit robotic and a little bit prescribed. And, mm-hmm. and, and I suppose part of that at times has been down to the limited sort of versatility in some cases of, of some of those parts in the puzzle. You know, Alexander Lacazette can't play, you know, he, he can't play on the left or the right, can he? And and we saw with, I mean, in the end, I don't know what Aubameyang's position was because he wasn't really, he didn't look very adept at anything at the end. But yeah, I, I certainly, I, I can see in my best sort of projection of what Arsenal's future might be, I can see sort of Gabriel Jesus being one of those, one of those moving parts. Yeah, I... As you can probably tell, I'm I'm pretty excited about his arrival, and I'm definitely in support of it. I'm not going to pretend that we're signing a superstar who is a proven goal scorer who's going to come in and get us, a, you know, a, a, another golden boot and a, and a title. But I certainly think that in the range of outcomes of what Gabriel Jesus can be, a top scorer in the Premier League is in that range of outcomes, and certainly a top combined scorer and assist provider is in that range of outcomes and with a lot of flexibility to boot. So I'm excited about it. You, you referenced the Arteta thing just on a, at a high level. Are you a believer in Team Edu and Arteta? I mean, do you did you maybe have some skepticism when you come around? Where do you stand on on that group collectively and, and their ability to guide us where we want to go? I've been pretty impressed with Arteta. I mean, I know the, the man management has been contentious. I personally was was pretty happy with the, the outcome, the denouement of the Ozil saga and the Aubameyang saga as well. And when I see, I saw yesterday, I think when someone was speculating about the Gabriel Jesus signing, there was a, a, a list of Arsenal's wage bill or went around a breakdown and it looked a lot healthier than it did certainly a year or so ago. And, yeah. you know, that was such a millstone around Arsenal's neck. I, I mean, for, for several years, it's been a sort of bugbear of mine. People have talked about the way we've, bought acquired players but I, I think we've been the bigger problem has been the way we've not sold players or the timing of some of the sales and finally to kind of go tabula rasa and to be able to get rid of all of those very expensive assets um has been a major major development and it's also you know i think it's been so important the last year the fact that the team is, has been well liked by the fans and i think that's translated into the way they've probably performed on the pitch and and there was resent you know some of the fans resentment among other resentments about the way the team was performing was towards players who were earning in their eyes too much money or who were who were preventing arsenal from being more nimble in the transfer market because they still had three years left on their contract so i think that's definitely been a positive thing i mean edu it's it's really difficult to to judge i mean what his day-to-day looks like in that role, I've, I haven't really got much idea. I can only speculate about. I mean, as I say, I've got a few contacts in football and loosely connected with Arsenal who weren't that impressed with him when he when he started. Um, they thought he was more style than substance. But um, you know, certainly last year's transfer window in the summer was encouraging. There were some players that I've really enjoyed watching, and um, I think shaping it pretty well this year. I mean, I, the Rafinha one is an interesting one because th- that's something you know sometimes you see these deals and you wonder why why was it two years ago or when did he sign for Leeds was 18 months ago why was Mm. he deemed not good enough then but then all of a sudden 30 million euros later two years later he is deemed to be good enough sometimes things like that are slightly frustrating yeah, I would say that like that. that's why, you know how I talk about opportunity cost a lot? Like when people yeah. say, it's not our money, why do you care? Well, because mistakes lead to opportunity cost. If you don't mm-hmm. spend 72 million pounds on Pepe and you don't have 280,000 a week willian, maybe you go for Rafinha early and he mm-hmm. can bet into the side and become an option for the future. But when the right-hand side has willian and Pepe standing in the way of any other signing, you say, we just, we don't have a place for this player right now. And so mistakes... Mm-hmm become an obstacle to doing moves that might have looked great. Like the Fabio Vieira signing looks brilliant because it it reminds me of sort of the Luis Suarez signing at Liverpool, right? Getting him just before he went supernova. And maybe we're doing that with Fabio Vieira. But we can do that because to your point about a tabula rasa, we did reset pretty well last summer. And we we have cleared out a lot of wage bill. And now we have the ability to bring that guy in. We have European football again. And we say, I don't know if you're going to start for us every game, but we have a place for you and a use for you and a way to integrate you. Whereas... A season or two ago, 
with the players we had standing in the way, you can't make those kind of moves. So that that might explain why, like a Rafinha, for example, was not an option back then. If that sounds plausible. Are people, are people <laughs> have you seen any speculation about what he would earn at Arsenal, Rafinha? I haven't, and and that's something I did want to ask you about as journalists. Like in America, you know what these players earn because mm. it has to be reported, right? There's a wage, there's a wage bill, um, mm. a salary cap, right? And so the player contracts are literally public information in terms of how they fit into the salary cap. They have to be registered with the the teams. And there are not nearly as many creative ways that you can enhance their pay packets. You know, there's a lot of ways that's done in football, some that are well-known and some that are lesser known. Do you find it sort of odd the extent to which wages are reported? First of all, I think it's bizarre that we still do it in weekly wages. That's just, you know, a, a legacy of a bygone era that makes no sense. But like, they can be off by 50%, 75%, 100%, depending on what the total compensation package is made up as. So do you think there's any value in discussing wages? Like how close do you think we are to any kind of accurate numbers on that front? I mean, are they any more accurate or any less accurate than transfer fees? I mean, it's, it's quite rare mm. nowadays for, for transfer fees to be disclosed, isn't it? I, there are certain, the cultures in different countries are quite different. Um, there are, well, Often when teams in, I think, Portugal and Spain make a, a lucrative sale, they're quite keen to even put it in a press release, aren't they, how much they've got. But I I always wonder about how these deals are structured and whether if we as fans were to look at how the payments are structured, we might actually put a very different number on it to the one that's that's being reported. Yeah. And and the same with the same with wages, definitely. Yeah, I mean I I had um a night out with an agent not too long ago. And some of the stuff he was telling me about in terms of the way players can be compensated, you know, they'll go down to another country in a different part of the world and stand next to a box of cereal and have their picture taken. And it's funded by the club, you know, in a, in a secondhand kind of way, it's a handshake kind of arrangement and they get 5 million pounds for it. Mm. And it's a nonsense, but it's not on the wage bill per se. I mean, there's all kinds of weird deals like that, that are, I'm sure going on behind the scenes. And so I, while I think it's important to understand the way wages fit in as a component of squad building, of course, and into your budget, trying to assess that absent any good information is almost worse, right? It's, it's the whole garbage in garbage out concept. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. trying to assess wage bills is important, but with bad information, you're probably going to come out with worse conclusions than if you just don't even engage in the in the practice at all. So I've, I've sort of shifted my thinking a little bit about that. What I do know is we got a lot of big earners off the books. And mm-hmm. so there is room, there is wage availability in our total wage bill, whatever that number is. And so I'm a little less concerned about it, especially when it's going to 24-year-olds, 23-year-olds, because you have the possibility to get out from under that contract or move them on or even make a profit mm-hmm. on them. When you're doing it to a 30-year-old, it is dead money. You know, we call that in America dead money in a contract. Yeah. So I think that does make a difference. As we start to, yeah, please. Mm-hmm. And just just finally on the on the wages, Elliot, just thinking about it. I mean, in cycling, we also get this kind of slightly less feverish but speculation about how much people are earning, particularly because there's been this real escalation over the last few years in as kind of oligarchs have taken on these teams as as vanity projects and uh, you know, the the best paid professional cyclist currently a guy called Tadej Pogacar who's won the Tour de France twice last two years uh, he's on about six six million euros a year so these figures are sort of banded around and, and we speak about them quite often but it is quite difficult even there to identify where does the figure come from in the first place and actually thinking about it it often comes from other riders who are disgruntled and who are comparing themselves <laughs> and I think that that might also be the case in football um, you, you know, I talked about the lack of access in football, but I know, you know, players do communicate with members of the press or members of their entourage who then pass information on. And I think the players know pretty well what each other is earning. I would think so, because you know who knows the wages, the agents. The agents mm. know the wages. Mm. And the agents are going to talk to other players on their roster. They're going to go to the club and say, I mean, that's why I think Arsenal are in an interesting position with Bukayo Saka right now, because... You know, we know that he has an agent who can be difficult. We saw that with Balogun. We saw that with Nketiah. Now, ironically, we wound up getting both of them signed. But he got what I would re- regard as a pretty good deal for Nketiah. Now, there's a part of me that wonders, 
did Enkedia get a very nice deal because it was also tied to a conversation mm-hmm. about, hey, Enkedia, we might think 80,000 a week is right, but at 100,000 a week, that might help you work with us on SACA, right? You know, I mean, there's these kinds of things, maybe they happen, maybe they don't. How do you think about the SACA negotiation that's got to go on? I realize that there is a tendency among fans, and I was guilty of this. I went to the last game of the season, and I saw him do his lap of appreciation and him soaking up the love and the love he was giving and receiving. And you think, he's going to be here forever. He'll never leave. He loves us. But it is a business. He does have a tricky agent. That agent's going to be talking to him about what's best for his career, and he, and he has every right to consider that beyond his love for the club. As fans, we want to believe he's an academy kid. He loves us. We love him. He's not going anywhere. But I think it's naive not to at least explore the possibility that this could be more complicated than we think. Where do you stand on, first of all, how how big is the right amount of big to go to keep Saka, and whether or not we we will get that done, maybe even this summer? Well, as you say, I think the agent has Arsenal over a, over a barrel, really. And that said, I don't think he's yet at the point in his career where he's impatient, where he thinks that he's necessarily missing out on things. Um, you know, if he if he was available, the, there are certainly teams, big teams, superior teams currently to Arsenal who would want to take him. But I don't think there's there's a clamour and there's pressure being exerted on the agent from you know, whether it's Man City or Liverpool, I don't think they're so desperate to have him that they will spend a, a summer pursuing him and they will forsake, they will sacrifice other other targets in order to to get Bukayo Saka. So I think Arsenal probably got, you know, the, one more contract um, out of Saka. If Arsenal remain at their current level, they won't get another contract out of him. Um, but it, it will be a lot of money. I mean, again, there, I, I'm not sure what sort of figures people are talking about. I was pretty shocked when I saw that list. And I'm not, again, I'm not sure how accurate this is, but I saw that he was earning £30,000 a week, which I would love to earn uh, almost in a year. <laughs> but um, And certainly deserve, let's just say. Yeah, yeah. But um, is that, uh, I mean, can we, are we to believe that? 30, I mean, he was right at the bottom of the list of Arsenal's yeah. current squad. This is the point. It's it's a nonsense trying to even dig into mm. it because it doesn't sound plausible to me, but mm. who knows? I mean, maybe there are end-of-season bonuses, appearance bonuses, goal and assist bonuses. Maybe there is a you-had-a-great-season bonus. you got to keep these guys happy because even if you come with a big offer, if they feel they've been disrespected for the prior two seasons, the relationship might already be dead. Um, you know what I will say, though? You cannot, as an organization, go into a negotiation where you have to say yes. You, that's not a negotiation. Even with someone like Bukayo Saka, you cannot walk into that room in the back of your mind thinking, whatever the number is, we have to say yes to it, right? And the interesting thing is you can look at three examples. Theo Walcott, uh, Mesut Ozil, and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Three examples where Arsenal, at that time, for one reason or another, felt they could not afford... Mm-hmm. To lose the player. We had lost Robin Van Persie. Theo Walcott was actually playing really well. Um, and we gave him a contract that became a millstone. Mesut Ozil, we had just lost Alexis. Ozil was in a pretty good run of form. We gave him a contract that became, I mean, a millstone doesn't even put it, like an like a asteroid around our neck, yeah. whatever you want to say. And Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. And at the time, everybody felt it was right. You can't lose him. Golden boot winner. He's our talisman. We have to keep him. We took the risk. We rolled the dice. Again, another situation that did not work out well for us. And yet I find myself thinking, whatever it takes to get Saka done, just do it. But clearly, clearly, you have to have the ability to look across the table in a negotiation, Daniel, and have the other side trust that you'll walk away. Mm. And I don't think that Arsenal had that ability. And there's a little part of me that wonders, are the flirtations with Rafinha, even if we don't sign him, are they part of a larger negotiation to position us to make Saka's camp at least believe that we could walk? And look, I'm not saying, of course, Arsenal want to keep Saka, and I believe Saka wants to stay. But we cannot be so naive as to ignore that there's a business negotiation taking place, and you have to strengthen your hand. And Arsenal do not have a strong hand as far as I see it with Saka. So maybe the arrival of a Rafinha or even the suggested arrival of a Rafinha is is a way of saying, we will go as far as we can to keep you, but there's a point at which we can go no further and we must prepare ourselves to be able to, to 
go forward in a world where you're not here as much as we'd like that to not be the case. And I'm sure people hate hearing that, Daniel, but like, do, do you agree that there has to be a line, not maybe not a line in the sand, but an ability to credibly say to the other party, we're not willing to go into the stratosphere here? I mean, well, how, no, absolutely. And that's, how flexible should we be? Yeah. No, I think that's very plausible, your theory about Rafinha. Um, you know, we, we always kind of assume that a lot of Machiavellian and and things are going on in professional football and that um and that there are always kind of hidden agendas but when it comes to you know Bukayo Saka although people know or have some idea about his agent because it's Bukayo Saka and because he has this wholesome image I think people would struggle to believe that 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 would be the case with him but I would uh, part of me would like to think that that's what Arsenal are doing with Rafinha uh, I mean he's a good player and I like watching him he's very graceful and I could see how he would fit into the team but um, it, it, it's it's quite an unusual rumour that one well it seems to be more than a yeah. rumour it seems yeah. like it's something that might might very well happen and whether it's part mm -hmm. of a, a wider larger strategic play I'm not sure but that, that's certainly um, something I wouldn't mind seeing from Arsenal um, because um, they've been on the other side of that equation too many times I think yeah well and look on the one hand you can say to Saka hey we know you don't want to be run into the ground you don't want to necessarily play every single game at 100 miles an hour for 90 minutes. So we're getting this really good player to strengthen our squad, to make us more competitive, which you're going to like, and to give you the ability to, if you're not feeling up to it, miss a game without the team feeling like it's going to fall apart. Of course, the ambition is appealing to the player. The ability for the player to not feel like he has to be running to the ground is appealing to the player. And maybe you get the benefit of the player also realizing, hey, that guy coming in, who predominantly plays my position is really good and really talented. And if I want to be at Arsenal, I can't just dictate terms completely because now they are in a position where if I left, they'd be sad, but they're not destitute. They're not lost, right? And I think we went into too many of those conversations with the likes of Walcott or Ozil or Oba where it was pretty darn clear that we had no ability to walk away from that table. And I just don't think you can engage in negotiation that way. And like, again, no matter how much you love Bukayo Saka and think he wants to be at Arsenal, and I do, agents have immense power over their clients and they have their clients' best economic well-being in mind. I don't want anyone to think this is me saying Saka's going to leave. I think the idea that this is going to be an easy discussion that has an easy outcome is probably a little presumptuous. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it m there might be a fairly expedient solution in the next two or three weeks, but it will be a very expensive one, I'm sure. Have you been, is Saka the most excited you've been for a young player at Arsenal, though? I mean, can you think of a young player you felt as excited about who's a true academy player? Because Cesc Fabregas would be one for me, but not really an academy player. So where does he rank in the sort of young players that are stealing your imagination a little bit? I mean, very excited, but part of me winces at the the, the fervor around players like Smith Rowe and, and Saka, and, and the way also, you know, talking going back to talk about the Arsenal's negotiating position. Arsenal, obviously, it's in their interest to feed this because they're the most saleable assets, and um, mm. and certainly also in terms of recreating, rebuilding, and an identity for the team and for the club. I mean, he's he's absolute gold dust, but. You know, I talked about structuring my week around the weekends, you know, between Monday and Thursday or Monday and Friday, whenever the training picks come out or whatever. You know, there is a lot of building the myth of these players and players like Bukayo Saka. And then, you know, two years later, you find yourself having to negotiate with their agent and you, you're not in such a strong position anymore. But um, no, I, I'm very excited about Saka, but he's been there so long now and he's been he's been so prolific and effective for Arsenal that it, it doesn't really feel to me as though we should be talking about a young player. He's a very established player and he's a stalwart now. So when I think about young players, I kind of think about the the layer underneath Saka and what might come next. Um, yeah. You yeah, know, I'm... I'm I, I Go ahead, please. So I'm, I'm almost more engaged in the sort of psychodrama of Nuno Tavares and his Arsenal, <laughs> <laughs> Arsenal career. That's yeah. the kind of story, that's the kind of narrative that really, you know, gets my juices flowing. <laughs> it is interesting, right? Because on the one hand, we have these players that we probably should be concerned about keeping or where their future is, but it feels very safe and very sure. And then on the other hand, we have these players who just for one reason or another, they're, they're not in the plan. You know, there's, there's what happened with Pepe, 
There's what's going on with Nuno. And it's sort of interesting to watch that. I will say, I think Saka for me falls into the player I've been most excited to like and watch develop since Cesc Fabregas in terms of young talent that, that I think has a ceiling that distances himself from most players in the league, most players in the world. And I think Fabregas at Arsenal was, in my view, one of the best two or three players in the league. I mean, really, he was that good at a very young age. And I adored him. And I feel similarly about Bukayo Saka. So, obviously, hope he stays. I think the club will get it done. But I I, I think it is going to be a harder negotiation than maybe people presume. Uh, one last thing to wrap up this 20-minute podcast that we're going to do. <laughs> and uh, as I just steal your whole Saturday here. Um, and I, I know you would have preferred to talk to Clive, as most people do. So, I'm sorry you're saddled <laughs> with me. But it is what it is. Um I, I think I was, I was, I've been waiting for the manscaped advert, but <laughs> alas. well, I mean, you, you know, you, you do look a little bit her suit yourself. So, you know, I'm not going to ask if you use it, but it's certainly on the table. Uh, and I would recommend it personally. Um, so thank you for that. The, the future of the league, the future of the champions league, the future of football is something that I'm really, really curious about because suddenly these clubs, clubs that we used to regard as being sort of self funded, right? Self-sustaining or not, not necessarily the clubs that would behave in the same way as like a Manchester city are opening their wallets, are spending big, are spending big, regardless of net spend. We used to have to talk about net spend. We're, we're, you know, past a Rubicon there. We're, we're over the rainbow and, and off in the distance now in spending. And this even is happening in a time when capital markets have blown up, rates are going up, you know, there may be a global recession and, and it's not stopping the football spending. I, I do wonder what's driving this. Is it jostling for position to be in that Super League when that idea floats around again? Is, it, is there something I'm missing here? But I find it hard to believe that the status quo is going to stay the way it is with Newcastle now b- breaking down that door and coming into the group and you have City and you'll still have Chelsea and you have United and Spurs have a big stadium now and they can get their revenues to a level that are more closely aligned, Liverpool, Arsenal... These teams are not going to want to be in the Champions League two out of every 10 seasons and floating around mid-table the rest of the time. That's not their ambition. That's not what they signed up for when they bought these assets. How long do you think the current status quo is sustainable uh, the, the way it's going right now? I'm, I'm sort of hopeful, Elliot, that the, the live golf saga might catalyze, mm, might precipitate some kind of reckoning because it was just so utterly grotesque particularly the players press conferences before that um live mm-hmm. golf event a couple of weeks ago and the figures being mentioned 200 million f- just to sign on i think for phil mickelson and did you and, catch you know, the, mickelson's the, very sort of glib and and candid remarks that he made they were not well received on this side of the planet. no no and 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 the very strong message that came through from all of those players that gave those press conferences was that they basically didn't want to play golf anymore all any of them mm-hmm. talked about was the fact that they wanted to spend time doing other things um but that was so, as I say, vulgar and grotesque. I sort of harbour the hope that I, you know I don't know if professional golf echoes that far, although the Saudis might hope it does. Um, but that it might have some reverberations that that, that will sort of nudge people towards a, a reckoning in football. But you know, just without getting sort of too macro about it, the, the sort of sad um, realization or, or reflection. Um, that that I sort of make to myself is that you know uh, you, you guys you know talk twice a week about Arsenal and and kind of analyze the uh, Arsenal's performances and, and 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 you know so much about uh, about football is is to do with hope and we as football mm. fans we're we're hope junkies really and we spend our whole time hoping and really that if you analyze it that is that is what supporting a football club consists of it's mainly the actual moments of where you're really present and you're really enjoying and you're really savoring and cherishing are, are quite few and far between but you know we're hoping this year that a few signings will will elevate Arsenal and will nudge us closer to that objective of whether it's getting the Champions League or winning the league but you, you, you then are forced to sort of accept in a, in a sober fashion that actually we might improve and the football might be better. And it, I certainly hope that it's a bit better than it was last year, but that might 
result in the same outcome of finishing fourth and finishing or finishing fifth or finishing sixth and and what that means in reality is those sunday or those saturdays or sundays that we talked about that we structure our lives around there will be 10 of those across the season where you feel absolutely terrible because the team yeah. has, has lost they've they've been beaten by a superior team or they've just underperformed slightly and um and I, I struggle to see for Arsenal, I struggle to see that status quo changing um, in the near future. Although as much as I believe in Mikel Arteta and the talk of a project, you know, we are buying, you're talking about Gabriel Jesus, um, we're, we're buying fourth place team kind of players. Um, or we, we're being linked to that kind of player. But, which is not to say, you know, I mean, when Arsene Wenger bought Thierry Henry and, and Patrick Vieira, you could mm. also have said that about them as well. And you you find one of those, as you described, supernovas, and that can elevate the whole thing, um, which, you know, Liverpool did with Suarez. You put one, you get one lucky dime in the slot machine and that can change the destiny of your club for the next five or ten years, which it could do for Arsenal. Yeah, and and when you when you do it at a at one price level, you can have more rolls of the dice than when you do it at another, mm. right? When you, when you buy mm. Pepe for seventy two million pounds, you have fewer rolls of the dice, fewer options, and less flexibility. I, I'm my the hopeful side of me, Danny would say that like what what we're trying to do strategy wise mirrors a little bit of what Liverpool did, which is you get these players at twenty three, twenty four, who you think are good, but you believe that they can be excellent. And you're getting them at the point of their career when they're going to take that leap forward. Mm-hmm. And, and that doesn't mean it's going to happen, but I, I, that's my feeling. On the, on the more macro side of things with what's happening with football, I will say this. Whatever you think Stan Kroenke's willing to spend or you know, Liverpool are willing to spend or Todd Bowley at Chelsea is willing to spend, um, they are not interested in an arms race economically. They're just not. None of those owners want an arms race, want to say, I spent 200 million this summer, but they spent 250. I'll spend 350 next summer. They spent four. I'll spend five. Man City, fine. And maybe United just because of the immense revenue they have and the fact that they're a publicly traded company, they have a a need to sort of do that to maintain their, their asset value. But no, they don't want an arms race. And so there is a reckoning that will come. Because at some point, if Newcastle spend like City and City spend like City and Chelsea and Liverpool and Arsenal and Spurs find themselves spending 400 and 500 million in the summer, and still two of those clubs or three of those clubs are going to be finishing fifth, sixth, and seventh, even at spending four, they are not going to do that. That is not interesting to them to say, I spent 400 million this summer and I'm still sitting seventh through no fault of my own because the clubs above me spent 450, Mm -hmm. 475, 525. You see what I'm saying? The arms Mm -hmm. race thing is not what they're in it for. So I I tilt my head and I say, what are they in it for? What, 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 what What is the end game here? And I cannot help but think the end game is they are positioning themselves to be the clear choice, the clear gatekeepers who slam the door behind them and pull up the drawbridge Mm. and go into this next iteration of what football is going to look like. And we saw even UEFA, who were the protectors of the game when the Super League came came around, float that trial balloon of having a sort of legacy participant in the Champions League who would be be able to be in by virtue of their, their rating, their ELO rating or whatever it was. This is not sustainable. These big clubs don't want to have to have an arms race just to stay in the Champions League or stay relevant. So... Do you think it's at least fair as a final point to say that one way or another, this rampant spending and more clubs being a part of it and able to engage in it will be the straw that breaks the camel's back as teams start to realize they could still finish sixth or seventh spending two, three, four hundred million in a window? Yeah, I think so, definitely. And and in the meantime, the sort of slim hope that we can cling to is you know, I, I talked about Rafinha two years ago, he cost I don't know how much Leeds bought him from from Ren, um, but it was maybe 15, 20 million. Now he's 60, 60, 70. And that really shows that the, 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 how fickle those subjective judgments about players can be. And as soon as a player is mentioned in the bracket of linked to one of the top four clubs, his value appreciate well, his value multiplies by two or three, and he becomes a 60 million pound player or a 70 million pound player. When in, in, in essence, it's only by virtue of 
of a few individuals in a few top clubs having decided that he belongs in that rarefied company that the, the, they have put that value on him. But it's the same. He might be the same player that, um, you know, a Leicester or an Everton or a, or a, a lesser club were, were looking. And that's, I guess, you know, that's the story of how Leicester were able to win the Premier League. It's the story of um, how, you know, West Ham nearly made the Champions League last year. It can still happen, but the odds are stacked further and further or higher and higher against the, the little guy every year, aren't they? And there are an increasing number of participants willing to win by having the biggest stack of chips at the table, which just mm. means the smaller players have fewer chances. Well, we've all experienced inflation when we tried to put fuel in our car lately. I think you just experienced inflation with the 20-minute podcast <laughs> that we were intending to do. But what a great chat. What a great episode this winds up being. And I hope everyone will run out to buy your book on the basis of you being not just an intelligent, delightful man, but also an Arsenal fan who is not allowed to speak about this topic on his podcast without receiving abuse. And so the least we can do is reward you um, for, for that punishment by running out and buying Yan Ulrich the greatest that never was. Yes, is that that? That's the best correct. That never was. That's it. The best that was. I the will get that right. I don't even know the show. title of my. I don't <laughs> even know the title of my own book. Doesn't bode very well, does it? I mean, I got it right in the end. In any event, I hope everyone will uh, will rush out and buy that. And um, free boss F R I E B O S on Twitter. Correct. Um, Daniel, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I hope we'll have you on again, and maybe in a segment where you can actually talk to Clive instead of just me. <laughs> it's been a privilege. Thanks, Elliot. Thank you. All right. My name is Elliot Smith. We'll obviously have a lot more as the week goes on. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner, which is what you must do, should do, and have already, of course, done. We love you. We will talk to you after Arsenal 10. Transfer window nil. Chapman, welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.